0: Okay, so um, this new series we're starting, um, The Outlaw Jesus, um, we've been building up before Christmas, we've been looking at um, various things, and we came to that Christmas time, we spent a few weeks looking at the uh, the message of Christmas, and we want to spend a few weeks now looking at this con- this idea, that it is without question true that Jesus, as a historical figure, has caused more challenge, more issues, more um, positives, more negatives. There are people who have grabbed a hold of him uh, and claimed him for their own and said he's this and he's that. He is the most remarkable figure in history as an individual. What I want to suggest to you is as we look at this, as we spend this time looking at the issues of why I want to consider Jesus as an outlaw, we firstly, we need to think about what does it mean to be an outlaw. And then how can we understand it? Well, an outlaw is pretty obvious. I guess initially, initially we think it's obvious. Uh, I don't know what the first outlaw comes to your mind when you use the word. I'm guessing that there's going to be a pretty high proportion who are going to say Robin Hood. Uh, many people are going to say Robin Hood. That's the first outlaw that comes to mind. Uh, uh, Robs from the rich, gives to the poor. What's he doing there? He's outside of the laws of the land. That's what an outlaw means. He's outside of the laws of the land and he's doing something. And in being outside of the laws of the land, uh, there are those who are claiming him for their own. In this case, the poor. So he go, you know, he kind of uh, hangs around Sherwood Forest and uh, robs from the rich as they travel through the forest for the good of the poor. He becomes, if you like, on the side of those who are in need. At the same time, I think it's fair to say so that's, if you like, that's a formal law. That's the laws of the land that we are outside of. Uh, and are doing good as a result of uh, arguably doing good. At the same time, I want to suggest that there is another way in which people can be outlaws. Rather than being outside of, if you like, the judicial laws of the land, we can also be outside of the law by being somebody who behaves in a way which challenges and confronts what we consider to be laws ways of being. So that we can be, if you like, we can be a cultural or or a society outlaw. Somebody who stands differently, uh, stands outside of what is considered the norm and challenges the norm. So we can have the legal and we can have the, uh, the kind of society outlaw. One of the things that we see about Jesus repeatedly is that he challenges, he stands outside of, in some way, every group. Now, now, in a sense, that is one of the biggest claims of the Bible, that if Jesus is who he claims to be as the Son of God, then in some sense he must both agree with in some ways and at the same time challenge... Every single one of us, if he is doing something which is not just sitting outside of the law, but rather bringing into being a new law or the reaffirming of God's law in this world, if that's the outlaw status of Jesus that in one sense he stands outside, it's not just as a on the level kind of an equal, but rather that he stands as a superior being who breaks into this world and confronts every single situation and at the same time brings in, introduces to us, reintroduces to us and and establishes in our understanding the law of God. Now that's, if we, I just want to throw that in right at the very beginning. When I talk about the outlaw Jesus, we have the immediate idea that we want to grab a hold of him and say, therefore, he's against that lot and he's with us. Many would say that. The reality is he stands confrontationally opposing the laws that we create for ourselves in many different ways. And as we journey through this, we're going to see the way that that, ...works its way out. One of the things that... Um, ...well, it's happening this week, past week, isn't it? The, the big explode, explosion of the, the the film of the year, some are claiming, Les Miserables. And um, one of the challenges there is the idea of an outlaw... ...who enters into the story and, if you like, the one who holds the judicial authority realizes that somebody who is, as he sees, uh, blindly in a fixed way outside of the law can actually bring good. Towards the end of the story, it says this. Now, however, uh, Javert says this. Now, however, a new, unprecedented, unacceptable idea is forcing its way into his consciousness as he looks at Valjean. There is a higher law than the judicial apparatus. A man can be an outlaw and still be virtuous. Javert is entering a new moral universe. His narrow, uncomplicated world is crumbling. Maybe that's the very experience that we, in some way, are going to have to go through. The... Uncomplicated world that we think exists, Jesus in some way is going to challenge as we, as he confronts the worlds that we construct for ourselves where we believe everything is boxed off. He is going to enter in, he is going to challenge. The section that we're looking at this afternoon is Matthew chapter 13 it's if you like it's the one that you would most think about when you think about jesus being a challenge and an outlaw matthew chapter 13 is the if you if you got the we haven't had the opportunity to read all of it this afternoon i want to encourage you when you get home read the rest of it it is one of the most devastatingly powerful chapters in the whole of the Gospels, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is no other chapter where Jesus is so confrontationally in the face of the religious elite. He is devastatingly in the face of the religious elite. On seven occasions, we read this phrase, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Seven occasions he describes the religious leaders, the religious thinkers and powers of the day as hypocrites. He says it blatantly, he says it clearly, and on each of those seven occasions he then gives a description of why they are hypocrites. He says you are hypocritical. You are religious leaders, you are called to be if you like the carers of the people uh, from a religious point of view, uh, and you are hypocrites um, I, I would say that that is something that maybe maybe the church isn't willing hasn't been willing enough to listen to in the past uh, and I would apply it to uh, apply it to the, the the heritage of of the churches that I've been, um, if you like, historically connected to that as I look back over the 100, 200, 300 years of the development of the church, exactly the same can be said. Why? Because I can look at that and say, I can apply that to me, you hypocrites. It's in, uh, there is an inevitability that the idea of, uh, of faith and religion and the idea of a commitment... Uh, to God, can create within us a hypocritical spirit. So straight away, even though I would say, here's Jesus, uh, he's standing against those kind of religious powers, he's calling them in-your-face hypocrites, it's easy then, as I mentioned earlier, for me to say, I'm with you, Jesus, I want to grab hold of you, I want to say that you are on my side, because you're standing against all of that religiosity, and then at the same time, I want to say that when he says, you hypocrites, I've got to step back and say, and by the way, I can fall into that camp as well. So it's really easy to kind of grab a hold and to say, I'm with you on this one, without being willing to say, oh, and I'd better listen to you on this one as well. Seven occasions he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law of Pharisees, you hypocrites. Seven is can be an important number in the Bible. It's, it's, very often it's used as a number to describe a completion, a fullness, a biblical, a kind of, a, 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 from God's perspective, a completion. So we've got the seven days. I don't think, it's, I don't think it's, a, it's not without significance in this particular case that Jesus uses seven ways of describing the Pharisees as hypocritical. Because he's he's act, he's actually saying, in as God, as a declarer of God in this world, I'm declaring you to be, if you like, completely hypocritical. Seven is significant in that way, uh, and I want to encourage you to to have a look at that and to say, uh, to see how that works its way out. Woe to you, he dis- he, he says. Uh, And verse 1 to 12, which goes before those seven descriptions, 1 to 12 gives us um, three ways, or if you like, three understandings of how it works out like that. 1 to 12 is, if you like, the introduction. That's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look at the outcome, firstly, of what it means to be hypocritical. And we're going to look at the motivation, of being hypocritical, and we're going to look at the authority that brings about a hypocritical spirit. They're the three sections, and we're going to go through it. First thing that we see is that in verse verse 2 of this chapter, we see something very important. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That, that didn't actually exist. There wasn't literally a seat of Moses. Um, Moses, the historical, uh, patriarchal, well, uh, post patriarchal, the founder of uh, God's people, bringing them out of. Uh, the uh, Egyptian enslavement, the one who bears the law, the one who brings into existence the law of God for God's people. That's the significance of Moses. He's the one who introduces to God's people the law by which they should live. And what Jesus is saying is you sit in his seat. doesn't mean that the temple had a seat that had on the back of it Moses. What it means is you sit in the heritage and in the responsibility and in the authority that comes with bearing that responsibility. That we, we, we kind of use the word seat in various other ways, uh, it's in the same way in various other situations. We have the seat in various academic institutions. Uh, you, you, you kind of carry on the work that has been done. That's the idea that Jesus is saying. Now, that's really important, isn't it? He's saying, you sit in the seat of Moses. Where did Moses get the law from, according to Exodus? He got the law from God. And then Jesus is saying, you sit in the seat of the law that was received from God. Now, that is really important that we therefore understand that Jesus is not saying that law is now discredited. He's saying that law is what you are responsible for bearing, for taking uh, before the people, for being responsible and accountable for the delivery of that and the nurture of God's people through it. You carry the law. They represent God's law. The problem is that in representing God's law they have spiritually distorted it. What happens when we spiritually distort God's law? Because I think that that is something that you and I today need to really take, take a hold of and understand. Is it possible that I, you, me, might be in my mind, in my thinking, spiritually distorting God's law and causing great damage to myself, to other people around me, and ultimately because of that misrepresenting and distorting precisely what God has placed in this world, which is a way to live according to him. So the first thing that we see is in verse um, 1 to 4, we see uh, 2 to 4, we see this. Uh, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, Jesus says. Now, in one sense, there is an irony to that. He's using it in an ironic sense. In another sense, he's saying, if it is Moses' law, if it is the law of God that was placed uh, by God in this world, then it still has credibility. It is still something that you should follow according to the people of that particular day. That's another issue which we'll cover on another occasion. But then he goes on to say, but do not do what they do. There's the problem. Do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Wow. That is some—that is a devastating condemnation, isn't it, of anybody who stands In the responsibility of being the bearer of God's law, God's word in this world. If we hold on to it and we basically are saying, this is what Jesus is saying, the Pharisees are doing, do what I say, not what I do. That's basically the condemnation that he is uh, pointing at these religious leaders. Do what I say. Not what I do. Look at them. Look at these religious leaders. They are bearing that valuable law of God in this world. But they are not doing it. Well, I think if you were uh, in the situation at that first century uh, Jerusalem, you would probably think, actually, they are really doing it. They, if you look at the things that they do, if you look at the way that they live, they seem to be following the law absolutely to the every little detail. And that's the problem, in a sense. They've distorted it, they've twisted it, and they've created priorities out of small things and missed the huge things. Jesus says it like this. He says the problem is uh, that they, they tithe or they give a tenth of the spices. So one of the things that they're called to do is to give of what they have received. So they've, re- they've got dill. In verse uh, 23 it says they've got spices, mint, dill, cumin. They give tithes of all of that. But they've neglected The more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. So they're doing the tiny things really well. You know, they kind of, they're measuring out their spices. They're measuring it out. I've received a hundred milligrams of cumin. I'm going to give. 10 milligrams so that it can be contributed and sold and provide funds for the temple. But I don't care a jot about mercy and justice and forgiveness. That's the crisis, isn't it? That's a problem when that distortion of what the law is, because what they've decided is that the law, according to their perspective of the law, is all about the tiny little things that we do as opposed to the big issues of the engagement uh, of God in this world. Don't do what they do, but do listen to issues of what they say, Jesus says. What happens when we distort spiritual truth is this. We tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. That's what they do. They're making. They're saying to you and to me, who are, if you like, we're the, ones, we're the ones who are listening to these demands of the law that are being placed on me. And they're like a con- constant, growing, increasing weight on the shoulder. They're just bearing me down. I can't carry all of this responsibility. Jesus says they're laying it on and laying it on and laying it on, but they are not doing anything to lift the burden. Now, that's really important. I think we need to think to ourselves, well, hang on a sec. Jesus, these laws that are being talked about, these laws that the Pharisees have thought through and and worked out how to apply the law of God, where's that come from? It's come from God's law, hasn't it? Law of Moses but they're not doing anything to lift it. How can you do both of those things? How can you lift the law and apply the law? How can you do that? Can you do that? In fact, today, as we live our lives, how can we live following the law and the, the demands that God makes on the lives that we live and not allow it to become a burdensome weight. I think the only answer is when we hold the law and grace together. We've got to hold those two things. We've got to say on the one hand, God makes demands of me, yes. But at the same time, what are the bigger issues? The real big issues is that God is a God of astounding grace. Jesus said, I've come so that your burdens might be lifted. Isn't that interesting? He uses that same word, burden, in a previous occasion, in that this very gospel, Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Thank you. I think the significance is quite clear. There is a sense in which when I look at the law of God, when I look at what God demands of me, when when I look at how I ought to be, I realize that the law of God is way beyond my ability to deliver it. I cannot do it. I have failed. I will continue to fail. It is beyond me, beyond my ability to deliver against that. And if I look at that alone, if I look only at the fact that I am going to fail against that delivery, it becomes a massive weight on my shoulders, figuratively speaking. What's my answer? What's your answer when you look at how God demands that you should live? The answer is what? I've got to work harder. I've got to work harder to do the things that God would want me to do. If that is the way we think about God's law, we're doing precisely what the Pharisees are being accused of doing. We're putting the weight on our shoulders, and we're putting more weight on our shoulders, and we're putting more weight on our shoulders, and we're doing nothing to lift that weight. Nothing to lift it. And Jesus says, I've come so that that burden will be lifted. What does that look like for you and me? It means that I can live knowing that he makes those demands of me but you know what? I can live a failure. <laughs> I can live a failure. I can live failing to deliver. That is the best news that there is. Not because he accepts failures, but because he carries the burden of my failure. He carries my Ineffectiveness. He carries my rebellion. He carries all of those issues. He becomes the bearer of that burden. He, he lifts the burden. Now, you're saying, you might say to yourself, well, fair enough. I can see how Jesus does this, but aren't these Pharisees, aren't they in a different time in the history of God's people? Aren't they at this point in time accountable for making sure that people follow Uh, the law of God? Aren't they just caught in that moment? I don't think so. Because if we dig back into the Old Testament, we find that God is exactly the same there as he is now. Listen to what it says in Psalm 103, verse 9 and 10. Incidentally, I think my two favorite verses in the Bible. Psalm 103, verse 9 and 10, it says this. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. What is God like that's the key. What is God like? Is he a God who heaps demands on us and then beats us up when we fail to keep them? Or is he a God who says, this is how you ought to be. When you see that you can never keep it, you can still come to me and I will not treat you according to your iniquity. I will treat you with justice, yes, but justice found in me. I will treat you with mercy. I will treat you with kindness. If you run away and you either ignore that demand and you say, I'll carry on living the way I want, thank you very much, or if you carry on saying, I can keep on working hard to deliver against it, You are never really coming to me. But if you say, I come to you in my inadequacy, failure, rebellion, and I say, what are you like? He will say, I am a God who does not treat you according to your iniquities. That is the way in which the Pharisees of the day could have lifted the burden. By describing what God is really like. Rather than laying on the people more of a burden to do it right. (laughs) When When we lay clearly in our view the demands of God, we need to hold side by side the nature of God. What's He really like? The great news is He is a God of mercy. So I want to say, well, why do they behave like this? How is it that this kind of behavior, this kind of pattern has happened? Number two, section two, the motivation is very clear. Verse five says, everything they do is done for people to see. That's the problem. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. What's that all about? Phylacteries takes us back to um, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse eight. Says this: Tie the law of God as symbols on your head and bind them on your uh, on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. In other words, what um, Moses Deuteronomy was saying is embrace, hold on to the law of God in such a way that it is at the forefront of your mind and affecting your day-to-day activities all the time. Tie it to your forehead, tie it to your wrists. I would suggest that that is a figurative way that is being described there. Make it figurative draw a picture of what it's like, how much should God's law affect us. It should be so effective in our lives that it's hitting us in our thinking day to day and it's right there next to our hands day to day. What they did was take that verse and make it literal. So phylacteries are leather boxes with a leather strap which are still used by some Orthodox Jews today, uh, and they literally carry written text in them. Strapped onto the forehead, strapped onto the wrists. In other words, what's that saying? That's saying that I will ignore the reason and create a ritual. I'll ignore the idea that the law of God should be constantly shaping me and I'll fulfill that demand by wearing something on my head and wearing something on my wrist. In other words, it doesn't matter what I do day to day as long as I've got these things strapped on me. Do you see see the, the disregard of the heart of the message And replacing the heart of the message with a ritual. Religion has done that right through the centuries. It has disregarded the heart of the message and created rituals. So that rituals become acceptable to God. I've done this. I've done the ritual, therefore you've got to accept me. As opposed to saying, I submit to the way that you would have me live and I live with your word in the forefront of my thinking and shaping my actions day to day. But look at the way the Pharisees have even gone beyond the ritual. They've made their phylacteries wide. What does that mean? It means that they're literally, literally walking around the street with big leather boxes on their forehead. Big leather boxes, very long tassels, tassels on the garments back in the Old Testament, back in the law of God, are there described as a a physical reminder of God's mercy and God's blessing. In other words, they're saying, I will portray... In front of all of you, this great big box on my forehead, packed with the law of God, this gr- these great big, bo- big boxes strapped to my wrists, portraying the law of God so that what? So that you will look at me and think, there's a really religious person. There's a really religious person. You're just so religious. You're so committed. You've got a big box on your forehead fulfilling that ancient word. You must be a really religious person. And the Pharisees are finding that that recognition, the recognition of people around them, is more important than the recognition of God. That's the issue. They're saying, look at me. I've got a great big box of the Word of God strapped to my foot. In fact, in reality, my phylactery is wider than your phylactery. My box of, of text goes right across my forehead. Yours is, yours is held. Look at this one. I must be really religious. I look at this. I can hardly move my hands because of the weight of these leather boxes. I'm a really religious person. And then you think to yourself, let's stop and let's say, am I in the same danger of creating patterns of behavior which in our culture, in our way of doing things, look religious? But they are a million miles away from the heart. You know, the Word of God doesn't actually affect my thinking day to day. As affect my actions day to day. I'm not living with a constant reminder of the tassels day to day. The word of God shaping and impacting me. The presence of God shaping and impacting me. I'm quite happy for you to think that I'm religious because your opinion means more than the opinion of God. Wow. That is, that is devastating, isn't it? Because the reality is, as far as we see here, that we are in massive danger. If we are living our lives massive danger, if we are observing the recognition of other people and we are a million miles from God ourselves, what a devastating place to be. Where the opinion of other people is more important than the opinion of God. And Jesus subverts, I mean there is nothing more outlawish really than Jesus coming into this situation and saying those guys who think that they are the religious leaders, who think that they are supreme and important and the models of how to be, don't listen to them. In terms of following their behavior, because it's a dead end. They care more about you than they do about their Father in heaven. In fact, what they really love is they love to be seen to have the really important seats, (laughs) they love to be recognized. We see that and they love the place of honor at the banquets, the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Do you know, I'm going to be really, I'm gonna be really um, honest here in terms of my perspective of how that I see that working out in the historical church of the past thousand years of this country. I want to suggest to you that that kind of attitude Is predominant and powerful and everywhere in the way the church has behaved in Western Europe and the West down through the past thousand years. We want to be seen to be big, we want to be seen to be powerful, we want to be seen to be important, we want to gain power and authority. And the reality is that is empty. It's empty. It's being seen to be sitting at the most important seats. In the places of power around the world. And we forget about justice and mercy. That's a problem that the church has faced for the past thousand years. Why? Because that's the nature of what we're like as people. We are far more inclined to care what people around us think than what God thinks. And when we don't stop that and we don't allow the words of Jesus to correct us and to pull us up in our thinking and to confront us and to say, never mind them out there being the ones who are hypocritical. What about us? Look into the mirror. How, how, how can we fall in I want to ask the question I'm not going to pose the answer here is it possible that we could fall into the same patterns of behavior even now I want to say I want to suggest yes but not necessarily describe all of the ways in which it could work out but listen to Jesus we have exactly the same tendency because of the problem of our hearts deep down inside so the motivation for the twisting and distorting of spiritual truth, is so that we can gain credibility in front of other people rather than recognition before God. And then finally, we kind of lead into it with the final words that we see in verse 7. They love to be called rabbi. And then Jesus goes on to say, "'You're not to be called rabbi, "'for you have one teacher and you are all brothers.'" And do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father and He is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors or teachers, for you have one instructor or teacher, the Messiah. Three ways in which we use titles to create identity. I don't think Jesus is actually that particularly worried about ways of describing people again if we say that that see what it says there says don't call anybody father if we say that that's kind of that's an immediate barring of the term father uh, for anybody who's in spiritual leadership Uh, well I I don't think that's at the heart of what Jesus is saying at the heart of it is the, the the attitude the the kind of the thinking that goes behind what's he saying don't three ways don't call yourself rabbi what's a rabbi master don't any of you in any kind of spiritual leadership ever claim to be master that's what he's saying don't be a master be a servant do not be a master don't don't give the impression don't carry the attitude of being a master Don't create an environment where you want people to follow you so that you become the master, so that you become the power broker, if you like. Don't anyone claim to be father? I think what's behind that, what does a father do? He imparts life goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father in heaven. In other words, your life comes from your father in heaven. You don't get spiritual life from anybody around you. You get spiritual life from your father in heaven. So don't look to anybody else for spiritual life. Look to your Father for spiritual life because He is the one who imparts life. Nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah. That's interesting because later the apostles actually deliver roles of teachers within the church and that we see here Jesus is saying don't. What's going on there? I think behind it is not Not the idea that we don't have teachers in the church, but rather do not have the idea that the teachers that we create are the ultimate authority. Because the ultimate authority is Jesus. Peter says this, he says, now listen, you, he's writing to the church, you are living stones and are being built into a spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood. You are bringing spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, one of the basic ideas is that you do not look in any of those ways at other people. Straight off the bat, in our culture of celebrity, In the world in which we live, our culture of celebrity, isn't it so easy for the church to embrace exactly, imbibe exactly that idea of celebrity so that we have those heroes of the faith that get bigger than being servants in our thinking? And if I say that there are people who have created in, in we create in our minds the idea that there are other people who are bigger than that and we end up following them rather than following Jesus and seeing them as servants to help us rather than uh, seeing them as servants uh, to help us and we, we don't see that, we take them beyond that and we see them almost as ultimate authorities. The church has done that right the way down through the centuries. Calvin, Augustine, Luther, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and in our day, Driscoll, Keller, Piper. Do not do that. Do not create in your mind any individual who becomes greater in your thinking, greater in shaping you, greater in making claims and demands on you than Jesus himself. If we end up in that situation, we fall foul of precisely what we are being warned against here. Finally, why why can Jesus say this? Because the greatest among you will be your servant. Picture the scene. Jesus has got a crowd of people around him. I reckon that probably some of the Pharisees are on the outer edges of this circle. It's exactly this discourse that becomes the spark for Jesus to be nailed on a cross. So I'm guessing that there's some Pharisees that are kind of on the outer edges of this discussion, listening to what's going on, listening to what's being said, clocking it, making a note, there's another one. To condemn him. Picture the scene. Here's Jesus surrounded by all of these people and he says this. The greatest among you will be your servant. Therefore, you go and behave their same way. I think that's how we can read verse 11 and 12. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The greatest among you. In that particular gathering, who was the greatest? (laughs) Who was the greatest? The superior Pharisees at the edge? Or the Son of God as the peasant teacher? The greatest is Jesus, who then says, quite clearly, the greatest in this gathering right at this moment in time will become your servant. How does he do that? by holding this discourse, by saying the things he said, by being willing to follow all of that pathway and then allowing himself to be nailed to a cross. Because that is the way that he becomes the greatest servant of that gathering at that moment in time. As he stands in that group and he says, the greatest servant, the greatest among you is going to be your servant. He delivers it. In a matter of, weeks he delivers just this he becomes the greatest servant and therefore is able to say so you go and humble yourselves and don't exalt yourselves because the one who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted Jesus the outlaw Straighten the face of the religious leaders and yet at the same time making demands on every single one of us. With the authority to do it because he becomes our servant. The greatest becoming the servant. That really is at the heart of the gospel, isn't it?